You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air, the podcast where we delve into the world of technology transfer and innovation. I'm your host, Lisa Mueller, and today we have an intriguing topic to explore, spinning out biotechs, how timing is everything. Spinning out from academic institutions has always been an exciting prospect for researchers and entrepreneurs, but determining the right time to take the leap can be a challenging decision. Today, we'll be discussing the critical factors that influence the decision to spin out or incubate groundbreaking technologies. We'll also dive into the world of academic therapeutic product development and learn about the strategies used to overcome the valley of death and bring valuable intellectual property to market. Please join me in welcoming our guest today, Irene Abrams, the Vice President of Technology Development and New Ventures at Boston's Children's Hospital. Irene leads the Technology and Innovation Development Office, which is responsible for commercializing discoveries and innovations developed by researchers and clinicians at the hospital. She's also the Managing Director of the Technology Development Fund. With her extensive experience at various institutions like Partners Healthcare Innovation, Brandeis University, and MIT, Irene brings a wealth of knowledge and insights into the world of technology transfer. Welcome, Irene. I'm so excited to have you here on the air. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me. I'm really uh, looking forward to our conversation. I am too. And we have a lot to talk about because our topic today is spinning out biotech. So let's go ahead and jump right in. So, Irene, building meaningful intellectual property is crucial for successful technology transfer. Can you talk about some of the strategies you employ to identify and potentially protect valuable IP in the early stages of technology development? Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a terrific question. Um, and, and I think what um, is, is so important about it is that it really identifies IP as being the key to technology transfer. Um, and certainly at Boston Children's, we use all the usual techniques that people do. You know, we, we file patents, we uh, get to know our faculty early, we do a lot of sponsored research. Um, but we also um, really seek to add value um, early for a lot of our technologies because what what we've really seen and I've I've really seen um, over the course of my career is that um, while um, innovation at um, academic institutions, particularly in the life sciences, uh, really drives the biotech and pharma industry, and so much discovery comes from innovations. Uh, first identified in academic institutions, um, you know, and if you think about things like CAR-T and gene therapy and mRNA and vaccines and so forth, that, that all originated from, uh, from academic institutions. Um, but at the same time, over the, over the last uh, 20 years or so, patent law has changed in ways that make it harder to protect biological discoveries as opposed to therapeutic compounds. Um, and so a lot of academic institutions, and this has been a focus of a lot of what we've done at Children's, 
um, have been thinking about how to not just protect early innovation, but but maybe even advance the technologies a little bit further. So in addition to having a really meaningful discovery, um, you also might have meaningful intellectual property. So we spend a lot of time um, uh, trying to advance promising technologies so that we have the chance of owning some of the meaningful IP. So if you think, um, you know, I've been in this uh, field my whole career, so I'll say, you know, back in the day, it was easy to get a patent on a target. Uh, pharma companies were more than happy to pay what we called in those days reach-through royalties, um, saying anything that they discover that up or down regulates your target, they'll pay you on. And uh, and that certainly has changed over time quite significantly. And um, and uh, and now it's really quite difficult to get value for for biology without having an actual therapeutic compound at least a little bit identified. Um, and so we do spend a lot of time thinking about um, incubation and how to advance our technologies. So we both do all of the um, usual things that tech transfer offices do, and we and we love when technologies come across the door that are, are valuable already, but a lot of times we really have to think about how to advance them. And so we have both internal funding programs and we have a lot of strategic, strategic partnerships with industry that are focused on co-development of technologies. Um, and so we, this is something I think about a lot in, in my career and in the work that we do at Children's. Now, I want to go back to something that you alluded to, and that was incubation, because timing really plays a crucial role in this process. Can you share some insights into when it's best to spin out a technology versus maybe incubating it further within an academic institution? And also uh, along those same line, what are some key indicators or milestones that might signal when it's ready to move forward? And how do you assess the potential for commercial success? Yeah. You know, I have to say um, tech transfer is still more of an art than a science. And so um, each situation is a little individual and you and you really have to think carefully. And there are a lot of elements that go into um, deciding whether to, to spin something out. Um, a lot of times um, we don't have a lot of potential partners at the table. And if you do have a promising partner, and the faculty member is really excited about it. A lot of the times we'll go forward um, uh, because, you know, in that sense, you have an opportunity, you know, and, and you don't want to miss out on that opportunity on the hopes of, of maybe having a, a future opportunity. On the other hand, sometimes um, a technology will come to us that we know has a lot of potential but it's not really quite ready. And um, a lot of times folks in industry will say, gee, if you if if we had a little more de-risking and a little more confidence, then we would be ready to move forward. Um, and so there are cases where we um, will look at something and decide, you know, it would be really great to incubate it a little bit further in the hopes that we can get closer to a um, value inflection milestone. Um, but a lot of times, you know, it depends on um, the IP, the state of the IP when it comes across um, our desks, the market interest. Um, we respond a lot to market pull. We, we have to. Um, and the interest of the investigator and kind of where they where they are as well. Um, so it's not it's not a perfect science by any means. I think, um, you know, when when you look at um 
the data in the life sciences in academic licensing, um, a key inflection point for um, value is is really two years before an IND. So if you look at deals, often that's when, if you're close to IND, where where you get a higher value. But it's it's tough to get there as an academic institution. Usually we have things that are much earlier than that. Um, and it's quite expensive to drive them all the way to, uh, to IND ready. So we do a lot of early deals and, um, and some of our early deals, um, you know, we'll take an equity stake in a spin out company and often they don't turn into royalty bearing deals because either our IP was so early that, you know, it didn't cover the ultimate product. Um, our patent didn't issue the way we hoped it would, or the company pivoted. And uh, and didn't in the end use our IP, um, but you get to hold on to the equity, and and you know often there's a lot of dilution, but sometimes we've done we've done pretty well on that. Um, so it's it's um it's not a perfect science, and we're pretty opportunistic, you know. But I believe very strongly that um, all of the work that we do in um, academic technology transfer, it starts with the creativity of the faculty and the researchers. And so we also look, work closely to align with our researchers and to really understand, um, you know, what their hopes and, you know, and dreams are for their, really their life's work and what it's, um, and its expression in the commercial realm, if that's a direction that they, they hope to go. Um, and so, so we weigh all of these um, different variables, the IP, the market pull, the faculty interest, what we think the potential is. And that's that's sort of, you know, we put it together and try to find a path forward. So Irene, as you all know, risk assessment is a crucial aspect of the tech transfer process. And often, you know, people and you others in the field, you have to make really tough decisions. Can you share some of your experiences or examples where you had to evaluate and mitigate the risks associated with spinning out or incubating a technology? especially when the market demand may not have been fully evident at the time. And if you could tell us a little bit about how you approach such challenges. Yeah, this is one of the um, the really hard things about the, the work we're in is that, you know, we, we work with scientists who are at the cutting edge of their, um, their fields, often they're um, ahead of their time. And um, and the market isn't always ready for them, and industry doesn't always recognize uh, where things are going. So, for example, a lot of times people will ask, well, what's the, um, you know, can you do some market research on that invention? And I'll say, well, there is no market, right? I mean, <laughs> this is like a, you know, this uh, if, if this works, it's a new market. So, so you have to think about and weigh a lot of different things. So uh, I'll give an example, and I'll talk a little bit about the, the process, too. So we do have examples where we've invested in technologies where it wasn't really clear if they were going to make it um, over the line into commercial hands. But if, but we believed enough that if we could de-risk them, um, we would at least have a have a chance of getting um, uh, an outside party to invest in it. So one of them was a, a technology that um, uh, came from our uh, anesthesia department, and it's a long-acting local anesthetic. And um, and so it's used both for um, for surgical um, anesthesia and for post-surgical pain. And it lasts um, 24 or 36 hours post-surgery. So 
the idea is that it, it both serves as the anesthetic during surgery, but then also um, avoids opioids and post-surgical complications. So very valuable, very interesting. Um, we had um, animal data, but we had no human data. And there was a lot of um, interest in the market, but nobody was really ready to commit. Um, and in that case, uh, because we believed in the product ourselves and because we had the support of the chief of the um, anesthesia department, um, we co-invested in um, funding the phase one clinical trial. So there was an investigator initiated clinical trial at Children's. Um, and after that, once we got that uh, uh, early human data, we were able to license it to a pharma company. Um, and that um, sort of overcame the risk in that case. Um, other times, um, you know, we funded things that were much earlier, you know, much further from human trials, but that de-risked the projects enough so that we were able to get a, a commercial party to invest. So, so the way we think about this is, um, you know, we have our expertise within the office, um, you know, our, our tech transfer expertise and, and, you know, many years of experience with early stage commercial development. But we also have um, a number of industry advisors for our office, outside uh, experts, who we who help us make the decisions about investing in technology development. And that's really helpful because they are number one. I mean, they're very dedicated to Children's Hospital and very generous with their time. But they are, you know, cold hearted business people. And so they generally look at things with a more critical eye. Yeah, they're going to call it like they see it type of thing. Yeah. And they're less likely to be influenced by the, the politics of the institution. I was going to say less diplomatic. <laughs> exactly. Less diplomatic and also less, um, you know, they don't they don't have to live at the institution with the same people over and over again. So it's, it's a little easier for them to be critical. And it also partly takes the burden off the tech transfer office and gets you out of that that um, uh, middle ground, which is which is really helpful politically as you as you invest in projects because you can't invest in everyone, right? And so we do rely on um, outside experts. Uh, we rely on external advisors. And then we also have built up over time um, a really talented internal team, uh, people from industry, people who have done drug development in industry um, to help guide us around these projects too. So we we try to to do a combination of our own internal evaluation, our understanding of the IP, our understanding of the, you know, the faculty member and their interests, and then our, uh, and look to experts outside to, to validate. And, um, and that's, and then, and then our own internal team. So, so that's how we do it. Um, you know, the hard part is when you turn people down, it's always painful and there's no way to fund everybody, even if they have a, a terrific project and we believe in it. We just know why we have limited resources. Um, but we've had a lot of um, success in funding. You know, the example I gave you was of a phase one clinical trial, which is pretty advanced. But we also have examples of funding um, early toxicology, early um, uh, lead development, um, even even compound screening that has helped push projects to a point where a third party will invest. Well, and I wanted to ask you about another area that I know academic institutions struggle with, and that has to do with retaining and incentivizing their researchers, particularly during the, the spin-out process. How do you address those challenges and ensure that your researchers remain engaged and committed to the tech transfer process? 
At Children's Hospital, our faculty are are all um, Harvard Medical School faculty. That's where their academic appointment is. And as a Harvard faculty member, they're allowed to consult 20% of their time on outside projects. This is not uncommon in the Boston area. MIT has the same rule. Um, And so faculty can start companies and spin out technology and, uh, and keep their hospital appointment. Um, as long as it's limited to this 20% time. We do have a very involved conflict of interest process at Children's Hospital, so we can manage conflicts of interest. Very important, particularly in academic medical centers where where there's patient care and there could be patient involvement. So we have a very active uh, COI process that all the faculty have to go through. But they're, you know, but they are allowed to start companies. They're allowed to be founders. They're allowed to take founders' equity and keep their, you know, keep the upside of their founders' equity. So that's usually a pretty nice incentive. Definitely. And then um, they also get a share of uh, any revenue we bring in, whether it's, you know, through equity, cash out, royalties, milestones. At Children's Hospital, the inventors share about 30% of what we receive and their lab gets another cut and their department gets another cut. So all in, it's almost half of what we bring in goes back to the inventor or the inventor's um, academic department or lab. And so that's also pretty incentivizing to folks. So we have not had a lot of trouble keeping people engaged in the process, but we also generally, you know, we we don't go ahead with a startup company unless the faculty member is really invested because it takes so much of their time. And if they really just want someone else to take it and run with it and and they just want to go back to the lab, I, I would encourage them to think about licensing it to an existing company because if they want to start a company, they've got to be out there raising money. They've got to be out there sit, going to board meetings. They have to sit on the SAB. They It's going to take a lot, a of, lot time. of their time and a lot of their um, energy. Years ago when I was at MIT, I used to call it a post-tenure activity because people could not start companies before they had tenure and then they got tenure and they're like, oh, what am I going to do now? But um, but a lot of more young faculty members start companies now um, and, and figure out a way. But that's how we retain and incentivize. And I think actually, if we didn't have an active tech transfer office and we weren't encouraging of um, faculty innovation, we'd have a we'd have a harder time retaining faculty in the Boston area because they really they expect it. Yeah, that makes sense. Given, like you said, in Boston, there's a lot of places that they could go and uh, receive those incentives. So that makes a lot of sense. So, Irene, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you about venture capital firms and biopharma companies, because obviously collaborating with them from the tech transfer perspective is very complex. Can you talk a little bit about how you establish mutually beneficial partnerships and what are the key elements that contribute to successful alliances? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to to talk about that. You know, I think it's important to remember when when you enter into these relationships that they are really long-term relationships. Um, You know, patents, obviously, 20, 21 years. Um, The product development cycle for um, a therapeutic you know, eight, 10, 12, or more years. Um, They're very long-term relationships. And so I think it's important to structure it so that um, to the best of your ability, um, incentives are aligned. And so, you know, when you have a a good, strong patent, that's pretty easy. The company wants your patent. You you want your patent. Um, That works out fairly well. Um, But you want to, you know, you, you need to structure it so that there's, there's room to share success, but but you're not so, I'll just say maybe so aggressive as to uh, 
suppress the ability for the technology to go forward. So that's, you know, that you have to be a little careful about that. Um, I've mentioned faculty a lot. I, you really need faculty buy-in. Um, I don't think there is a lot of successful technology transfer where the faculty member isn't involved. And that's true for, for, for pharma and biopharma companies as well, because so much comes up in the course of early stage development, especially in those early years, uh, whether it's scientific, whether it's regulatory, um, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, going over there to give them advice um, and, you know, and help them think through uh, the design of the research, whether it's sharing assays. So um, making sure the faculty are, are um, bought into the relationship, setting up as many um, mutually aligned uh, aspects to the agreement and to the best of your ability to, to build trust. Um, you know, it's not, it's not perfect. And um, I think, you know, um, uh, you know, I'm going to sound like the uh, the old person, the old cranky person on the corner. But back in the old days, people stayed in their jobs longer, right? So there's also the fact that there's a lot of turnover. Yeah, so you might have is. a really great relationship with the person across the table, but they're not going to be the person across the table for the whole relationship. And then, and then the other thing to think about is even if you have a great relationship with somebody in a in a startup company, uh, if they're successful, they're not going to be the person sitting across the table writing you a check someday when the product hits the market, right? That's going to go to, you know, they're going to be acquired, hopefully, or they'll license off the technology. So you also have to structure the agreement so that it's not only based on trust and friendship, but also um, has, you know, has some good definitions in there that will protect you, you and your institution when they, if, if they are successful. You know, I don't know if this, this, uh, uh, data point is still accurate because it's kind of old. But back when I was at MIT, we did a study of um, exclusive license agreements, and it turned out 50% of them were amended within the first four years. I think I've seen similar stats to that very recently. I don't think it's changed too much. Yeah. Um, I, so I, I agree with you. So it's it's in both parties' interests to have a good relationship, not only the academic institution, because the, the pharma company or the, the spin out is going to come back to you either because, you know, they want to sublicense something and the sublicensee doesn't like the terms and they want you to be flexible or, um, you know, you have some new IP. There's just, there are always things you have to work out. So you have to think of it really as a, as a very long-term relationship, not as a sale. And, and, um, and that, you know, is is really the best you can do. The, the other thing I would say is that, and this is true on both sides of the table for the industry folks and for the folks in academia, is that um, it also helps a lot to have people with experience because I think a lot of times the issues that you face are, they're complex and they're nuanced. And, um, and if either party isn't really comfortable um, or hasn't had a lot of experience with the issues, it's very hard um, to build that trusting relationship because people don't always know what their what the consequences of their decisions are. So I think it's also important to, you know, on our on our side of the table, train people really well and mentor staff and help people really grow and learn and understand, you know, what you know, you're you're negotiating this contract, but what does it really mean and, and how do you really think about it over time? And that's helpful, of course, on the other side too. Now, I wanted to switch gears again, Irene, because when I talk to people in tech transfer offices on this podcast, I often ask them about challenges they face. And one of them is resource constraints. Can you talk a little bit about how you allocate resources effectively to support multiple technologies, as I know you're doing in various different stages of development? 
especially when you have some, like you mentioned earlier, that need further incubation? Yeah, so I would say we've been really lucky at Children's Hospital. Children's is a very entrepreneurial organization, and they've been really supportive of our office and supportive of this concept of technology development. So when we've had really good years, and we've had some really good years, the hospital has often given us some of the royalty return to reinvest in in new technologies. Um, And that's been sort of the basis where we've started this this technology development program that we have. And um, and that's been around uh, over 10 years. We also get a small uh, share of the royalty distribution every year. So we have a little bit of evergreen, which helps a lot too. And then the hospitals recently put um, another fund together for us to do sort of a deeper investment in a few technologies. So they've been They've been really, uh, really generous. So uh, I have to say it's a really fortunate place to work. And I know uh, not every institution has access to those kind of funds. Um, But even with children's generosity, you know, the money doesn't go very far. uh, Product development and therapeutics is wildly expensive, right? And so what we've done is we've built up a lot of outside partnerships, strategic partnerships with with pharma, biopharma, venture. where we uh, have what I think of as, we call them strategic alliances, but they're really co-development agreements. And so um, we have uh, brought in over $100 million worth of opportunity through these partnerships. So we have a a longstanding partnership with Pfizer CTI, for example. Uh, We have a deal with Deerfield. They have about 20 partnerships out there now uh, with Autobahn Labs, um, a few unique ones with Elevate Bio, with... um, uh, with Beam Therapeutics. And so these, these co-development partnerships are, are, I think they're really interesting. They, they all take the structure of a master-sponsored research agreement with some level of pre-negotiated license terms. Um, but what they really do is they um, risk share on the front end, right? So they, they have a, a big sponsored research component. Um, so, there, so the company is funding that technology development and that de-risking. And then they have some form of upside sharing on the back end. So sometimes it's the patent royalty, so that's pretty easy and straightforward. But, um, but they also will often share. In fact, we only do deals in which the parties agree to share um, in the upside of what comes out of that partnership, independent of patent ownership. So if you take sort of the most... Um, basic example, like say your your investigator has a new target, the company identifies the drug. Um, maybe that will be co-owned technology, but maybe the compound will only be owned by the company. But in these frameworks, they agree to share the upside of the sale of that product that's identified through the partnership. So um, so it's it's both um, cost sharing and then uh, so risk sharing on the front end and upside sharing on the back end. So combined with our internal funds, so if you think about the scale, Children's has invested, um, you know, has has put about, you know, we haven't spent it all, but all in about 20 million in, in technology development activities. But through these partnerships, we have access to over 100 million. I mean, it doesn't, it's not, it's not that they wrote us a check, right. but th- that's the scale of the, um, of the opportunity. So you really need both unless you're a very, very well-funded office. And I, I think 
maybe Wharf is the only one. <laughs> there are very few of those. But the model that you just described where, you know, it is a partnership and a mutual benef- beneficial one in terms of, you know, it really doesn't matter who owns the patent. It is a collaborative relationship. And so I think sometimes those tend to work out versus, you know, filing early on and, you know, a technology and either you run into Section 101 issues or you can't get the breadth of claims that you want because of written description and enablement. And then, you know, you're not going to get the license revenue because the patents don't cover the technology. This just seems like a much better kind of scenario than than that type of uh, situation that I just described. Yeah, no. And, you know, and these partnerships have a lot of um, other benefits because, you know, these are these are um, pharma companies or venture companies. So they do have a very critical eye. Right. So they they are very picky about what they fund, but what they fund really passes the diligence. And so that's that's great. And they wind up providing a lot of feedback and education for our faculty, even when they don't fund the project, but especially um, when they do fund the project. So for example, we have a um, an investigator who um, received funding under one of these partnerships. And this is someone who's a, you know, a brilliant scientist, but complete basic scientist, I don't think has ever thought about industry before. Um, uh, he entered into this partnership, but the the party on the other side formed a research team, and he had his research team, and they collaborated throughout the life of this um, project. And I think it was really transformative for how this scientist thinks about his work and um, thinks about his trainees and their careers, and thinks about um, the impact of of basic science. And I think sometimes um, those secondary um, Benefits are also really valuable to the academic institution, even if, you know, you can't count them in in dollars and cents. But in terms of helping um, our faculty really learn how to be uh, how to translate their technology. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've been focusing and talking a lot about commercialization, but I also want to talk about social impact because technology transfer isn't just about commercialization, but how we can drive social impact so can you talk about how you balance the pursuit of financial success with the mission of advancing healthcare and improving patient outcomes? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, we are a pediatric hospital, Boston Children's Hospital. And so um, uh, social impact and patient care is top of mind all the time for us. And um, there are there are many examples where um uh, particularly in drug development and therapeutics, where if you do get a if you do get a product to the market, um, there is a social benefit. There's a new treatment out there to help patients, um, and we have a lot of examples of that. I can I can talk about if if you're interested. Um, and that is also when we make money, right? If a, if a product is sold, uh, a royalty comes back. Um, and so in that case, um, I feel like the social impact and the and the revenue generation kind of go hand in hand. But we also have a lot of examples at Boston Children's where that's not the case. So particularly um, if you think about pediatric medical devices, this is an area that's very challenging for us because there is not a real market pull in pediatric medical devices. However, there's a tremendous medical need. So so with the with the various internal funds that we have, we do fund a lot of um, uh, pediatric medical devices even if we're not confident that there will be a commercial partner at the, at the um, other end, but we're pretty confident it will change patient care. 
And the way I sort of think about it and um, explain it sometimes to the to the hospital leadership who who want to know what what we're doing with their money is that if we develop a device for pediatric cardiac surgery, say, um, even if there's not, and there's one that we're funding that, uh, if it works, will uh, reduce the number of times a child will need surgery. So the challenge with with um, pediatric cardiac um, surgery and devices is that, of course, the child grows, right? If, if a child's healthy, a child's going to grow and eventually outgrow the the device, and and they will need many, many surgeries. Um, and so we have a couple of very um, clever, brilliant uh, pediatric cardiac surgeons. Of course, they're clever and brilliant. Of course. Innovative <laughs> too, who've made devices that can grow with the child. They can't grow all the way from infant to, to adult, but it reduces the number of surgeries. And so the way we think about that is, if we're successful at getting this product made, getting it um, through regulatory approval, then you know children's may become a center of excellence for that kind of surgery. Because if you're a parent and you think, well, you know, if I go to Boston Children's, maybe my kid will need fewer surgeries. You know, you're going to get on a plane or, or or drive a few hours, right? Absolutely. So um, we think a lot about how to advance pediatric medical devices because we can't rely on the market. It's just the pull isn't there. Yeah. That's an amazing story. And I hope it does work out because for every parent's worst nightmare is for their child to have surgery, let alone cardiac surgery, and then to be facing multiple cardiac surgery. So yeah, that would be a huge uh, social impact, you know, assuming it, you know, ultimately becomes a product. Yeah. And what's interesting about that one is that we did um, fund the development of the project and then the faculty member was able to get a matching gift. And so Sometimes our funds lead to other kinds of funding, too. I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot about commercialization, but um, but sometimes these early funds lead to gifts or matching funds from a foundation. And that we, we always consider that a win. That's great. Well, I want to turn to the dark side and talk about the Valley of Death. We've kind of skirted around it a little bit as we've been talking here. And, you know, that's a common struggle for almost every tech transfer office. And I'm sure that's been a a struggle you've encountered throughout your career as well. So can you share with us some of the best practices and innovative approaches that you and your team at Boston Children's have implemented to help build meaningful IP and successfully bring these technologies to market? Yeah, so, you know, this is near and dear to my heart and thinking about how to be successful in technology commercialization and how to help our faculty really, as I said, you know, see their see their technologies, make it out to have uh, that broad impact uh, through the commercial realm. And the 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 ways we've done it have been through our internal funding mechanisms. We've we've um, we've we've done a lot with that um, through our through our external partnerships as well. But the other thing that we're uh, thinking about a lot now, and we're we're sort of launching what we're calling a, a therapeutic accelerator at Children's, which is sort of an, a program over an overarching program to um, cover our internal funding mechanisms, our our external partnerships. But then the, then what I think of as the third pillar is really um, I think of it as community. So in the Boston area, there are a lot of resources for. Um, helping faculty advance their projects, whether they're um, uh, resources at our sister institutions within the academic realm, whether they're um, incubators within town, whether they're like, you know, some of the Lab Central incubators, our pharma friends have different kinds of incubators um, and different companies that have sort of been set up to support early stage development. 
And so what we what we want to do is, in addition to the to the pieces I've talked about um, a, a bit, is really build up our. I think of it as our community. Really, how do we make sure that uh, the resources that exist in the community are available and accessible to our faculty, um, so we can really expand our reach and what we can offer to faculty, even if it can't come out of Boston Children's. Um, and we don't want to, uh, you know, remake or build everything ourselves, right? That doesn't, um, it's not an efficient way to do it. And so that's the sort of third part that I think about a lot is how to build those relationships. Now in the Boston area, we're very, we're very fortunate because there are so many resources and that's not true in every part of the country, um, obviously, or in every community. Um, but a lot, but there is a lot available, um, even you know, to folks who aren't located in Boston. Um, and so that's sort of the third pillar of the stool that we that we think about. Now, biotech is constantly and rapidly evolving. So I'm curious, Irene, how do you stay ahead of emerging trends and ensure that Boston Children's remains at the forefront of tech transfer as well as spinning out innovations? Yeah. You know, to a large extent, we rely on our faculty innovators to be at the cutting edge, and and um, generally, they 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 really are. Um, a lot of the uh, you know the technologies that we work with, you know, come up from the faculty, and and uh, and so we rely on them. And then, um, you know, within the Boston area, we have a pretty tight tech transfer community, and we share a lot of best practices, and we we you know we communicate a lot. You know, I'm a, I am a big believer in Autumn and sending people to Autumn to learn best practices from others and especially outside of the Boston area because, well, you know, we think we know everything. We really don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. People in other parts of the country might disagree with you, but there you go. It's a friendly debate. Exactly. And so it's an interesting time in um, in the world, but in the in the biotech especially. I feel, you know, we're, we're coming out of the pandemic. We are... I don't think we're quite in our new normal yet. I mean, I know we're in a we're in a new place. Thank God, we're not like you know all all home full time. But the um, the community in Boston and among the tech transfer offices and even with our own faculty hasn't fully um, come back to the level of um, sort of energy and face to face that we used to have. And so I think there are a lot of questions about how we're all gonna gonna move forward and. Um, you know, as a as a community, we relied so much on running into one another and seeing one another and being together. And uh, you know, it's it's sort of a, a, a maybe a bigger question, but thinking about how, for my team at Boston Children's, how do they really stay connected and really um, continue to be successful in spinning things out? So, as an example, we used to have. Um, I would say about six times a year, we would go uh, to Kendall Square, which is about two miles from where Children's is located, and we would have an event. It might be, you know, um, from four to seven, we'd have beer and wine and a couple of speakers, and we'd invite everybody we knew, and 50, 100 people from industry would show up. You know, they were all in Kendall Square. It was on their way home. They'd stop. They'd have a glass of wine and, you know, some cheese and meet some new people. A lot of our business development and relationships came from these kinds of events and everybody held them, not just us. So there was constant interaction. You know, it's not that the scientists aren't back, but it's it's the business development people aren't all back. And I don't know how things are going to continue to evolve because I don't feel like we've quite found the next 
I almost think of it like etiquette, you know, like a social understanding. The, so, the etiquette used to be you always show up in person no matter what, even if it's crazy to show up in person, you show up in person, right? You know, and then, of course, we all stopped doing that. And now we're back, but we're not fully back. And so I think it's an open question on how all of us are going to really stay as productive as we've been. And what's interesting, so my office, I've... um. I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, but I, you know, we've, I've, I've pushed really hard to get people back in the office and everybody comes in almost everybody the same two days of, of the week. And it's worked really beautifully. We have a really nice community of people. Um, the young people laugh, they have lunch together, they go out and get drinks. I, I love it. Right. It, it, it warms my heart to, to hear them laughing and building relationships with one another. And from a purely somewhat selfish point of view, I also feel like, well, you know, if they, if they like coming to work and they have friends and a community maybe they'll stay a little bit longer, right? It's hard to retain people and um, and maybe it'll be a little stickier for them and you know they'll stick around a little bit longer. But what we haven't fully rebuilt is our connection with the faculty and our connections across the institution and across the community. And so that's sort of on my mind for, for the upcoming year to think about how do we really get, you know, we've got the team back, which is beautiful, but how do we get the team connected back both within the hospital and within the the larger biotech community. I think that's, you know, a question for everybody that we all are going to have to address. I think that's a very legitimate question. I've heard that from other individuals and other tech transfers as well. The group and the team is back and they're doing things as a unit, but reestablishing that connection with the PIs and researchers has, as you alluded to, and as you've seen, been very difficult to do. And and how do you do that in this kind of new way of working? So I think that's a really good topic for for the autumn annual meeting to talk about, because I think everybody is facing that same issue. Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Irene, before we wrap up, I wanted to see if you wanted to share any success stories or examples of academic institutions that have established their own internal drug development incubators. Yeah, um, I have, a, I have a, a few I can talk about. Um, one of the the success stories um, that, well, there, there are sort of two that we're really excited about at Boston Children's. One is there's a um, vaccine technology that came out of our infectious disease department. It's a, it's a platform for vaccines. Um, it was spun out. It, we funded it a couple of times in its early days through our, um, our, our internal development fund, and it spun out into a new co. They were funded initially by the Gates Foundation, which is really uh, exciting. It was the first venture investment that the Gates Foundation made. And they've been developing um, a pneumococcal vaccine. Uh, It's a multivalent, uh, it's a platform for multivalent uh, vaccines. And last summer, they were acquired by uh, GSK. Awesome. We're super excited about that because um, GSK is an amazing partner for, um, for vaccines. It's a it's a real validation of the technology and the investigator and the work that um, that he and his team have done. Um, and it was a nice uh, exit for Boston Children's Hospital as well, because we did have equity. And we're really uh, excited about that. And we're working now on really building out our relationship with GSK, sort of a great opportunity to, to, to build that. Um, and the other one that we're, uh, we're really excited about that's um, uh, on the cusp that not everybody knows comes from Boston Children's is, the, is a, a CRISPR drug to treat sickle cell. It was developed by CRISPR Therapeutics in combination with Vertex, and it comes from uh, one of our investigators who um, who had the insight that um, you could disinhibit fetal hemoglobin in sickle cell patients, and their fetal hemoglobin isn't sickled, 
where their their adult hemoglobin is sickled and you don't and the way the hemoglobin uh, molecule forms you don't need a lot of the healthy kind to form these healthy tetramers and to sort of overcome the 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 problems with the disease and so they figured out um, a way to use CRISPR, a CRISPR guide sequence, to uh, affect this. And uh, as I said, we licensed it to uh, CRISPR Therapeutics, and they did a deal with Vertex, and it's in front of the FDA for approval now. And if it's approved, it's going to be the first CRISPR uh, therapeutic on the market, and they think it'll be approved in December. Congratulations. That's fantastic. And, you know, there aren't really good treatments for sickle cells, so that's fantastic. No, there are a lot of folks working on it, but this is these guys are going to be um, at the at the head of the pack. And I guess, you know, if you look at examples of folks who uh, institutions that have really great programs, if people want to look at uh, to model, um, I think you have to look at the uh, Harvard Medical School. They have a Blavatnik Therapeutics program, a very impressive program where they have um, a number of medicinal chemists who will work their setup as a core and they'll work for any of the Harvard affiliated teaching hospitals. They also have a physical incubator for NUCOs uh, at Harvard Medical School, but open to the affiliated hospitals. Um, and they also have a grants program that uh, that's been really effective. So they've they've done a lot of really interesting work um, also on the educational side. Uh, I mentioned Wharf. Wharf has uh, also has a really interesting therapeutic accelerator, and I've talked to those folks a couple of times. Really nice program. Um, I haven't checked in in a while, so I don't know exactly how it's going, but they were really helpful when we were beginning to set up our program. Mass General Brigham it does not have a physical incubator, but they have an internal venture fund and have a really significant uh, gap fund, and so um, they have a lot of activity and then to uh, jump over to the West Coast, you can't skip st- uh, Stanford and their Spark program, which uh, which is really a, a really great model as well. Well, thank you very much for for sharing those. That, that truly is fascinating. Again, congratulations on on the sickle cell drug. Fingers crossed that it gets through uh, FDA quickly here. So, but Irene, I can't thank you enough for sharing your insights and success stories with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Well, that concludes another episode of Autumn on the Air. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion and special thanks to our guest, Irene Abrams, for sharing her experience and expertise with us. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to tech transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for tech transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.